Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Finnish writer Aleko Lilius was in Hong Kong in the late 1920s. His book, I Sailed with Chinese Pirates, was an international bestseller. It's a rip-roaring yarn of pirate adventure, a pirate queen, beheadings, kidnappings on the passenger ferries, gambling houses and bordellos. Lilius describes a dynamic Hong Kong controlled by the Royal Navy and Macau as a slightly sleazy backwater. Aleko Lilius certainly provides some great stories as a gentleman adventurer, and while he definitely did travel around this region, he had a loose relationship with the facts, as British author Paul French found when he tried to find evidence of some of the people Lilius wrote about. But there was a pirate queen just a bit earlier. And there were plenty of pirates on Lantau and along the coast of Guangdong. Paul French has written an introduction in a republished version of I Sailed with Pirates by Aleko Lilius for Earnshaw Books. In this week's programme, Paul tells me about the writer and also reads some excerpts. So Aleko Lilius is a fascinating character. He is of mixed Finnish, Swedish and Russian ancestry. He was born in St. Petersburg, 1890, but um, his father was actually uh, Finnish and his mother was from the Caucasus. Anyway, he, he had a very successful business career before he became a reporter and in fact was one of the highest taxpayers in Finland at one point. He was basically what we'd now call a kind of investment banker. And he did very, very well, and that allowed him to sort of not have to worry about money too much. So he became an explorer and wandered off bits of South America, he went to North Africa, he went down to South Africa and China, particularly Hong Kong and Macau. And that's when he really started writing. And he uh, tried to do these popular travel books that were involved with adventure, which were very popular at the time. I mean, think of writers who are still reprinted much more regularly now, like kind of um, Robert Byron and The Road to Oxiana or Peter Fleming and One's Company or News from Tartary, which, you know, these are all in that style of sort of gentleman adventurers going on interesting journeys, often quite well educated um, and often coming up against pirates or bandits or, or warlords. Um, and he, he slotted right into that style. I Sail with Chinese Pirates was published in 1931 and, and was a bestseller and was reprinted quite regularly, did very well in America, very well in Britain, and sort of made his name. He comes to Hong Kong when? You see, the thing about Lilius is he, he's always slightly uh, ambiguous about when he was anywhere and who he met <laughs> and when and all the rest of it. You know, it's very hard to actually pin him down. So, I mean, late 20s. He was knocking around probably 1928, 1929. He wrote very fast. So, and he was sort of writing on the go, I think. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the book was published in 1931, but he, he's around the two or three years before that in Hong Kong, in Macau, up in Guangdong province. And he liked the region a lot and uh, ended up going to live down in Zamboanga in, in, in the Philippines. As a novelist or as a, what would you class him as? I mean, he would have liked to have called himself a correspondent or a reporter or a travel writer. I mean, I think he is somewhere between that and a novelist. It's certainly true that he went to Hong Kong and Macau. It's certainly true that he, he did go out certainly uh, with Royal Navy ships occasionally and some of the local uh, Hong Kong Police Pirate Suppression Bureau people. I'm sure he wandered around the back streets of Hong Kong and of um, Macau and obviously to Bias Bay, which of course we would now know as Dayar Bay, where the nuclear power station is around in, in Guangdong, which was then known as a nest of pirates. And he, he probably did go there and down as far as the Philippines. So, so he moved around a bit. He certainly did some of the work. 
But then once you get into the actual text, we start running out of sort of cross-references. And I think so many people were wandering around Hong Kong and Macau at that time, writing about things. And, and of course, Hong Kong had very good newspapers that it, it's sort of virtually impossible that some of these characters, big and expansive as they are, like the Pirate Queen and, and people <laughs> like that, wouldn't have been written about by anyone else. And yet he seems to have had an almost exclusive relationship with these people, which seems makes it slightly implausible. But there were genuine pirates in, in these waters. Yes. Yes, and and they were pirate-infested waters all the way all the way down the coast as far as Xiamen until you hit the other pirate suppression out of Shanghai. So all of that coast, all the way up, particularly Fuzhou, across to Taiwan, and around, of course, Guangdong province, up to Hong Kong and Macau, all pirate-infested, really. And infested is a good word. They were everywhere. And all those little towns down along the villages along the Guangdong coast were around what would now be Shenzhen, Juhai and so on were, were all um, often smuggling pirate villages and of course across to sort of Taiyo and uh, that, that side of Lantau as well. Salt smuggling, smuggling of other goods and just outright piracy. So yes, it was there. But what I was saying was that I think it's very interesting that Lilius downplays the violence, both of the pirates themselves when they stormed steamers or fishing vessels and of the Hong Kong police or Royal Navy's Pirate Suppression Bureau, which was very vicious and earlier, of course, had just straight away beheaded any pirates it found. And Aleko Lilius tries to get himself into prison in Hong Kong in order to interview some pirates. And that doesn't work because anyone apart from the most minor of pirates was basically hung as soon as they were captured. So, so the pirate suppression was extremely brutal. So he didn't meet any pirates? Well, he sort of claims that he met a few minor pirates. And then he claims to have met a couple of... Um, he met this ex-English uh, army officer who claims to have met some pirates. And then, you know, because he was a bit of a drunk, was thrown out of the army and uh, lived in Kowloon and met pirates. But then again, you don't know if he's making him up. Um, I might say, by the way, as far as I'm aware, there's no record of Aleko Lilius actually being in the Hong Kong prison system. Oh. Um, although he says he, he, was, he was in prison, but he makes up lots of places. He says it was the worst prison in the British Empire, though he doesn't say which of the prisons in Hong Kong he was in. But who's going to write about putting themselves in prison to try and interview people and say that everyone was very nice and cuddly? <laughs> I mean, he, he is, he is a, quite a sensationalist writer. Buccaneering among these pirates is an inherited trade. The pirate chiefs of today have inherited their junks and property from their fathers and forefathers. And many of the pirates have built forts on the small islands of the West River Delta and have organised veritable war fleets for the purpose of levying taxes on the cargo junks passing their territories. Did nobody disturb them, I asked. What about the authorities, both Portuguese and Chinese? What about the British? He laughed. The Chinese are too busy with their own wars, and the Portuguese and the British have nothing to say on matters concerning territories outside their respective jurisdictions. I'd like to meet some pirates, I said. Would it be possible for you to introduce me? He assured me that it would be the simplest matter in the world. He would simply call on a man he knew, the captain of a junk, which sailed up and down the coast. My Portuguese friend was certain that the man was in Macau, and that I would have a chance to speak to him. We made an appointment for a meeting the same afternoon in a gambling house. 
Aleko Lilius is always meeting people who have stories that may or may not be very true. He goes to Macau searching for pirates, and he's told that if he meets a man with one ear, he may be able to introduce him to pirates. So he goes to a small jade shop that the man owns, and he sits down and meets him, and he talks to him. And then he says, By the way, I said casually as I was about to leave, tell me how you lost your ear. The man turned and opened a drawer in a carved teakwood chest, took out a small package done up in dirty silk and unrolled it, disclosing a dried and blackened human ear, his own. But he would not tell me much about his adventure. He had been kidnapped by the Bias Bay pirates. While a prisoner among them, he had been treated fairly well, but all his letters to his relatives begging for ransom had been ignored. Then the pirates had debated for some time whether they should cut off one of his fingers, the tip of his nose, or an ear, finally deciding to let him settle the question. So he had suggested that they cut off his ear. Forthwith, this memento had been dispatched with a letter warning his family that if their dear relative was not ransomed plenty quick, his head would be coming next. And then they had finally ransomed him. On the trail of pirates, he visits a bordello in Hong Kong, uh, which is run by the fabulously named Madame Pompadour. <laughs> and um, there's pirates there and other people who come ashore with their loot because they're all in love with a young Western woman in there called La Belle Marie. And, of course, he himself is able to not succumb to the, the charms of uh, La Belle Marie. He's able to just drink champagne with Madame Pompadour. But, you know, again, who knows if there was ever a Madame Pompadour? I've never come across any other record of her. But there were, of course, on what is now Lindhurst Terrace, mm. or was then Lindhurst Terrace, was, of course, famous for the bordellos and brothels that were staffed by Western women. So he describes these places. And, again, when he goes to Macau, he has wonderful and very typical for the time descriptions of the fantan houses and the sort of back streets of this kind of you know there's always this contrast between royal navy dominated slightly dynamic hong kong and the slightly more lassitude and 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 sort of tropical languor of portuguese macau he's not the only one writing this i mean it's a real he's he's very what we would now call tropey in his writing you know hong kong is a navy town and macau is a kind of slightly sleazy backwater and you know I mean, this is how these places were presented at the time. Not wholly untrue, but, but also, you know, rather cartoonish. About midnight, we rambled into a dive kept by a European woman whom I shall call Madame Pompadour, because her name was nothing like that. And although she is a thorough sinner, I must admit that she treated me fairly. I have no desire to cause her inconvenient questioning by the authorities. Of course, she recognised Chang Liu at once. Hello, Chang, you old pirate, she greeted him. Who's your friend? Those words, you old pirate, made me prick up my ears. There was another lady in the house, and beautiful indeed she was. La Belle Marie will fit her as well as any other name. Chang Liu melted before her glances like butter in the sun, and I was left alone with Madame. You know, I used to be beautiful, she said, but I've lost my teeth now. Come again next week when I get my new ones. But where did you meet this pirate? When this book was published in 1931, what was the reader reaction? 
Well, very positive. I mean, who doesn't like a good uh, who doesn't like a good venture sitting in uh, Manchester on a rainy day or Ohio <laughs> on, on, on a boring Sunday? I mean, everybody likes a good adventure, and he certainly provides some very exciting adventures. And of course, the legend of Lai Choi San, the female pirate queen, and he he creates, I think, I mean, you know, or he says he has her whole backstory of the, how she came from a relatively wealthy seafaring family. He talks about how she hopes that one of her sons can go to America to study or to have his own Fantan house, his own casino in Macau one day. That is her dream for him. When it comes to Lai Choi San, it is almost impossible to tell where truth ends and legend begins. As a matter of fact, she might be described as a female Chinese version of Robin Hood. They have much in common. Undoubtedly, she is the queen of the Macau pirates. I have never seen her. I have almost doubted her existence until you told me of meeting her. She is said to have inherited the business and the ships from her father after the old man had gone to his ancestors with his slippers on during a glorious fight between his men and a rival gang. The authorities had given him some sort of refuge here in Macau, with the secret understanding that he and his gang should protect the colony's fishing fleets and do general police duty on the high seas. He even obtained the title of inspector from somebody in authority, and that, of course, placed him morally far above the other pirate gangs. He owned seven fully armoured junks when he died. Today, Lai Choi San owns 12 junks. Nobody seems to know how or when she acquired the additional five, but it is certain that she has them, and she has barrels of money, and her will is law. On the other hand, of course, you know, we don't have any other sources for Lai Choi San. You know, arguably, he just made her up. And also, um, you know, of course, he does, he tinges her with, you know, the son, of course, is not from one of her two husbands, both of whom seem to have died under mysterious circumstances, <laughs> but it's from a lover. So, of course, you know, the pirate queen, of course, is just taking lovers wherever she wants, kind of. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's <laughs> This is absolutely how things, uh, you know, the sort of tropes that, that he sort of jumps into. And it would be lovely to believe in Lai Choi San, but we have no other evidence for her, unfortunately. Now, when you say that the, these, there were sort of pirate-infested waters along the villages of, of Guangdong and Zhuhai and, you know, Lantau, Taiyo, these kind of areas, and, of course, that is true, that there would have been a number of pirates, but were they largely local villagers who were supplementing their income? Yes. I mean, you know, let's not glorify them too much. On one level, they were. But I mean, you have to remember a lot of things had gone on in, in China in the 19th and early 20th century that created the warlord era and created pirates, you know, which are really just sort of bandits at sea. And people had been kicked off their land or taxed out of business by corrupt officials or felt themselves to be mistreated in some way and so had taken to brigandage or piracy as a response to that. You know, if you look at Taiyo, for instance, which is a sort of fascinating place, it's all about salt smuggling. Well, why are they smuggling salt? Because they want to avoid taxes, you know, good old fashioned tax avoidance. So there's those kind of pirates which are mostly smuggling stuff around. And that, that's a good and honorable tradition that's gone on in Hong Kong for so long, right? I mean, we all remember the high powered boats that used to steal high performance cars in Hong Kong and run them across to Guangdong in the early days of reform and opening up. And of course, people smuggling across the border uh, and, and just about all sorts of other goods. So, so that's always gone on, probably always will in one form or another. 
as long as there's borders, people want to smuggle things across them. But I also think there was a sort of slightly rougher element to the pirates as well. And this was the people that really the, the Pirate Suppression Bureau went after, which was the, the people that were storming the passenger ferries that were coming, going up and down the coast. And that, of course, was a problem because these were businesses run by Swire and, and other groups in Hong Kong, as well as the fact that white people got taken hostage or mm. even killed sometimes. And so, of course, you know, then it all becomes triply, quadruply serious. And those were quite, uh, to use a sort of word that's often attached to pirates, they were quite cutthroat. I, I think that's when it really hits the news as well. And there's, there's any number of stories that came out during the 1920s and 30s of people who were on board ferries and were taken hostage. I was recently reading some stories that were sent by a young Australian woman who'd gone out to make her name in journalism. And she literally kept getting ferries backwards and forwards between Shanghai and Hong Kong, which in those days was about a three-day voyage. And it would, she would literally go backwards and forwards and be extremely disappointed that her ship wasn't attacked by pirates. Until one day it finally was. And um, she was so delighted because finally she got the story. And this story she wrote up and you know, ran in all the Australian newspapers and then the English newspapers picked it up and the American newspapers picked it up. And it became, you know, a great story for her and built her career. So people would actually go out there looking, looking for pirates. <laughs> the, you know, the, the being held up by pirates story was, was almost as good as the being kidnapped by warlord bandits in China <laughs> story. And there's, just, there's hundreds of them from that time. Now, Lilius, give me one of his adventures. It's, it's all sort of one big adventure with him. What's really interesting is how he gets to Lai Choi San and the Pirate Queen, which involves him really... You know, first of all, he has to go and meet someone. He never meets anyone in a coffee shop or a cafe or a church, <laughs> right? He always has to go and meet them in a casino in Macau or a bordello in Hong Kong. Or at one point, he goes into the back of a very dirty restaurant um, somewhere in Hong Kong as well, where he has to meet people. And eventually, he does get to um, Lai Choi San, who for some reason allows him to be on her ship. Um, and there's quite a good adventure where he goes across to Lapa, which is now Hong Chin island or hunting uh which is just off juhai uh, which was one of her haunts uh, she would go between macau and there and he goes on a couple of raids with her and the thing about him is you know he decides to describe her as very stylish i mean she appears on the on the bridge I and mean, if you ever look at pictures of pirates from that time it's they're clearly not making millions of pounds, most of them. <laughs> um, but she appears in satins and uh, better quality shoes and with jewellery and, and all sorts of things. And he describes her that way as they kind of raid a fishing junk, you know, on the West River there. And you just think, you know, he, he describes her as this. And we've already found out that, you know, she's had numerous lovers and a couple of husbands. And now she's got all this lovely satin clothes and everything. And you think like, wow, you know, it's, it's more profitable than you'd think, right? In the old village fishing junk, right? When Lilius writes Lai Choi San, who we really have no firm evidence ever existed, he is probably thinking of a pirate queen that did exist called Qing Shi. Well, that's one name she goes by. There were several others who was a pirate around 1800, who, as legend has it, was a prostitute in a Canton flower boat who married a pirate who had become infatuated with her. He died. She took over his fleet and um, eventually renounced piracy in 1810 when the Qing dynasty government allowed her to keep all the loot she had accumulated and to run a brothel casino combo 
in Macau at the time. And that that's that's a, and she eventually died in 1844. And she really, I'm not saying that whole story is true, <laughs> but she certainly did exist and was some sort of a pirate. So pirate queens in China and in South China are not unknown. It's just that I think Lilius had maybe heard that story and decided to update it by a century. What's interesting also in the book is, uh, so I sailed with Chinese pirates, is there's a few photographs. So you've got the poop watch, the powder magazine. I mean, I do enjoy the one where you've just got a chap or a man who's um, sitting on a ledge, in on, on a junk, and he's looking rather sternly at the camera and he's got a, a Chinese jacket on. And it says, a typical pirate type. Yes, a typical pirate type. I mean, <laughs> most of those pictures, as I recall, when I was sort of looking at, at writing a forward for a new edition, were pictures I had seen before. So there were all manner of pictures, many of which were taken by the newspapers out in Asia and also the Pirate Suppression Board for their records and other things and the Hong Kong government there. In those days, if, if Lilius had got hold of them, most of your readers wouldn't have seen them before. So there's no indication that he's personally taking these photos. He's just managed to gather them from somewhere, which again, you know, makes his um, account of things. You know, if he's going to have a picture of a typical pirate, and then he tells us about the wonderful Madame Pompadour and the wonderful La Belle Marie and lots of other people, yet he has no photos of any of these. Interesting. Which is sort of quite weird. I mean, one that interested me a lot, given what I write about a lot, is he bumps into another great trope of 1930s Hong Kong and China, which is the, the white Russian, the Russian emigre, that sort of, you know, ex-Tsarist army selling himself as a bodyguard. Lilius, who, of course, can speak Russian and has a part Russian background, hooks up with this guy called Alexander Litov that he talks about, who is an ex-Tsarist officer who offers to be his bodyguard. And he hires him for a while as a bodyguard. And again, it's just an another trope of that period to have this kind of, you know, strapping white Russian ex-Cossack wandering around Shanghai or Hong Kong or somewhere. You know, it's, it's such a kind of thing. But it was true at the time that these people were around. I've never come across anyone called Litov in any other work that I've looked at on white Russians as a bodyguard or anything. But it's, it's quite possible. Yet there isn't a picture of him. He also talks about the famous... Um, Gordon McClintock, who's the ex-army one who manages to get him into the prison. You know, he does what he calls his sojourn in the prison. And um, that's kind of fascinating as well, because he, you know, he has no picture of him either. And also, I came across about five or six titles of now long forgotten books by an anonymous author called Bock, which basically retell the stories and have many of the same photos, but do it completely as novels. And they're yeah. all published like a year or two after I sailed with Chinese pirates. So Lilius had this trove of stories, true or not, and he was kind of repurposing them, rewriting them, you know. And I Sail as Chinese Pirates hits the kind of non-fiction travelogue adventure list while he then rewrote them, just strictly claiming that they were novels. And again, you know, Lai Choi San and Macau and Madame Pompadour all appear again in them, but just called novels and by an anonymous author. Now, you say that he ends up in Zamboanga, which is uh, Philippines. How come? Oh, well, I think, you know, he claims that he kind of went, I mean, and this is true as well, that pirates did roam as far down as the Philippines, where, of course, you come across some Philippines pirates uh, when you get that far down. So the, the whole of that area is uh, full of pirates. He goes down there. He seems to find it quite a nice place to live. He's married by this point, and he's living in Zamboanga. Zamboanga was more of a destination in the 1920s and 30s than perhaps it is today. I mean, lots of people who visited in travelogues that visited the uh, Philippines, everyone goes to Zamboanga. 
And of course, it had a, still had a very strong American influence then. We're not quite sure what he was up to a lot of the time. I mean, he did a couple of trips to Singapore around this time and uh, actually got busted for trying to pass a false check and I think did a couple of days in prison in Singapore. And in Zamboanga, he was driving around in his car and then somehow he managed to drive across a level crossing and get hit by a train. Did his backing quite badly. And he spent the next couple of years arguing through the courts with the Philippines Railroad Company and eventually getting quite a large settlement. And, you know, he continues through the 1930s when he's living in the Philippines writing these books. There's one called Corsairs of the China Sea, which has some very good descriptions of Macau, which are very similar to I Sailed with Chinese Pirates. So I'm arguing that Bok was um, Aleko Lilius. If he wasn't, and it was someone else, then Lilius had a very good claim for plagiarism. <laughs> um, and, and given that he was taking people to court all the time, like the Philippines Railroad Company and a couple of other firms that he wasn't very happy with, um, I think he would have picked up on it because they were reasonably widely reviewed and, and well-read books at the time, though they're, they're completely dropped off the radar nowadays. I sailed with Chinese pirates. He's kind of getting in on the um, the whole, you know, gentleman adventurer in the East kind of um trend at the time. And then he kind of rewrites them as novels to get in on the whole popularity of sort of yellow peril novels that was around at the time. So he's trying, just trying to make a living. He also becomes a painter. And I think you'd have to go to Google and put in Aleko Lilius and paintings and you'll see his paintings. I, I really wouldn't like to comment on them. Um, they're not my style. I wouldn't particularly want one myself, but um, they're, they're a little bit fever dreamy kind of paintings. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but he, he got out of the Philippines, went to America, lived in Hastings-on-Hudson, which is a rather nice town, uh, not far from New York. And he lived there through a lot of the 40s. Uh, but he, he, and then he kind of went back on his adventures again and went to um, Morocco for quite a long time. Wrote a very good book, actually, called Turbulent Tangier, where lots of things is made up. But if you're interested in, I'm very interested in Shanghai and the notion of international cities, you know, truly international cities that sort of, have their own governance and so on. And Tangier is, of course, you know, the other city like Shanghai that had a similar sort of arrangement. And he wrote a very good book about um, about that in the 1950s. So he, he carried on working, writing, painting, making stuff up, but, but <laughs> always doing it with a certain uh, flair and panache. I mean, I Sailed with Chinese Pirates is a good read. I mean, it's a page turner and you'll mm. enjoy it. Mm. It's just... Um, yeah, it's not, it's not completely an accurate record. I'm not sure it would stand up in court. So this was Bias Bay. I had heard a great deal of the pirate nest, but to me it looked like any other Chinese village with huts and houses and walls around the gardens and the usual domestic zoo of pigs, dogs and multitudes of ready-plucked poultry taking up every inch of the road. There were, of course, the children, the beggars, and the screeching honey carts which spread an infernal smell wherever they passed. Although it had been raining hard, numerous babies were sitting in the middle of the road, black with mud. Only upon seeing our approach did their mothers rush out in the road, grab the children and then run madly away. Some women behind heavily barred windows and doorways shouted curses at us. They saw me, a foreigner, enter the village with a strange-looking thing, a camera, in my hand, surrounded by half-naked armed men as a bodyguard. I'm certain that they took me for a British official, or policeman, and they had every reason to hate the British, 
the only people who had ever dared to meddle with their alleged trade rights as pirates, a heritage from time immemorial. The honking flock of geese fled down the road in front of us, with outstretched necks and flapping wings. A black cat crossed the road and darted up a tree. And then the rain began in earnest. My thanks to British author Paul French talking there about the book I Sailed with Chinese Pirates by Aleko Lilius. Paul wrote the introduction in a republished edition by Earnshaw Books. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Mm-hmm.